Welp, we made it. It's been 84 sermons. It's been two years. I'm not kidding. This is the 84th sermon. We made it through the whole book of Matthew, provided nothing goes wrong in the next 40 minutes or however long we're going to be here, right? We land today, of course, at the Great Commission. So what exactly is the Great Commission? It's one of those churchy phrases. If you're new to all this, you might be wondering, what is a commission and why is it so great? A commission is an official mission under the authority of someone else. You are going in an official capacity as an official representative of that authority. This is the great commission because there is no greater commission. There is no greater mission and there is no higher authority than God himself. These that will come to are some of the last words of the risen Christ. This is the resurrected Jesus, the Son of God, and he is going to give this commission to his disciples, and it's going to be passed on to us as it is today, his church. These are our official marching orders. This is our mission and purpose. It's on our sign. It's on our, in our bulletins. We talk about it all the time. This is the Great Commission, the official mission for every church, for every disciple. And Jesus gives it to us today. So if you're still, Matthew 28, and we will dive into this. Last week, we went through Matthew's account of the resurrection, how Jesus' enemies refused to give up even after they successfully had him executed. Still today, of course, the enemies of Jesus do not give up. They continually suppress the truth in most all of its forms. An enemy of God is actually an enemy of truth because God is the definition of truth. The resurrection, though, changes everything because Jesus is actually alive. Then we should have no fear to go and tell. We should be confident because Jesus is alive. We said last week the gospel cannot be stopped. And this week... We hear some of the final words again of Jesus as we bring Matthew to a close. Look at, again, Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And so if we pause there, let's remind ourselves here that this is Matthew's account. Matthew is very brief in his account Right? There are other gospel writers that add more color to this. You might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, didn't he leave out some stuff? Wasn't there, there are other things that had happened. Luke, for example, tells us more. There are more conversations between Jesus and the disciples. The resurrected Jesus goes and cooks breakfast on the beach for his disciples. You're like, where's that? Didn't that supposed to, wasn't that supposed to happen? John tells us how the resurrected Jesus restored Peter after he denied him three times, right? And so it's important to remember that the Gospels are not conflicting accounts. They just give us different colors and different perspectives. They're each written by a different author to a different audience for different reasons and different things. And so they call in different events, okay? They're not mistakes if they're in one version of the Gospel and not in another version, right? Unfortunately, some of the best-selling atheists out there, like Bart Ehrman, will just pick this apart and say, this is why we can't rely on the Gospels at all. Because look, all of this stuff was left out. So I guess the, you know, who's right? What's going on? Bart Ehrman knows better because he's really smart, but he can't sell millions of books if he tells the truth. So 
He's stuck in that. So we've got to remember, when you hear critiques of this, you've got to remember the different reasons for the Gospels, right? So, so Matthew's account is pretty brief, and he just kind of, he resurrected, so here we go. <laughs> Here's your great commission. I'm alive. Let's go. So he, he gives them this great commission. He says that the 11 disciples now, minus Judas, they do as Jesus told them to. They head towards Galilee, and evidently to a specific mountain that Jesus told them to meet. I know some of you were like, he had told them to head into Galilee. What does that mean? Like, which part of Galilee? Is he going to wear, like, a, a secret flower on his shirt to let them know that he's the resurrected Christ where, at Starbucks? Where are they supposed to meet? Evidently, they had a conversation. They knew where to meet. We don't know where this mountain is. Maybe it's where Jesus gave sermon on the, the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know. But we do know for sure that Jesus loved to get away. So this is not a strange request, right? This is par for the course. Jesus says, meet me on a mountain. We saw Jesus time and time again throughout our study of Matthew, Jesus getting away, Jesus getting alone, many times on the Mount of Olives too, overlooking the city to pray. And I say again, if Jesus needed to get alone and pray, how much more so do we need to get alone and pray as part of our regular spiritual disciplines? So the risen Christ and his disciples finally have their reunion. What is the reaction of the disciples when they see Jesus alive again? Well, there are two reactions. It says, Matthew says, some worshipped, and ESV says that some doubted. Some worshipped, but some doubted. And I want to look at each one of those words. To look at worship, it means to express an attitude or a gesture of one's complete dependence on or submission to someone in authority. That's what, that's, what, that's what worship means. To express an attitude or gesture of one's complete dependence or submission to a high authority figure. Jesus was worshipped both in attitude and gesture. I am quite certain that those disciples who put two and two together really quickly, quickly fell on their knees and had their faces in the dirt before the risen Christ. We see that, but not everyone did. Others, Matthew tells us, doubted. And this word doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a, a, a rejection. It means a hesitation. It, it, and you kind of got to just give them a little grace, right? Jesus Christ, the, the risen Christ, is standing before them, right? I think I would be trying to process that too. I think I would be thinking about, what does this mean? How is this possible? I saw him die. I saw the tomb being sealed. I know everything he said, but I just can't believe my eyes, right? So this doubt is not a, a willful rejection of who Jesus is. This doubt, this word doubt, is more of a processing. It's more of a hesitation. It's more of a confusion. They don't even have a category for this. Jesus is alive standing before them. They can't process that. I love the authenticity of the Gospels, right? It's not neat and tidy, right? Maybe if we were writing this for a little special purpose, right, we'd say, yes, Jesus was alive and everybody, everybody worshiped Jesus and they all went and went to Chipotle or something, you know, like something, something to put a period on the end of the sentence, right? But no, this is messy. It's transparent here. It's like, no, some worshiped him, but some doubted. Some couldn't believe their eyes. It's not neat and tidy. I mean, this is crazy stuff when you think about it. And for us, it's an encouragement. And our encouragement is this. We should not hesitate to worship Jesus. We should not hesitate to worship Jesus. But I, I got to camp again on the definition of the word worship. 
First, we're going to touch on why we should worship Jesus, and then we're going to talk about what that means. But why we should worship Jesus, there's one reason and one reason only that we, sh- we should worship Jesus, because he's God. That's why. Only God is worthy of worship, and we should worship Jesus because he is God. And this passage is actually another proof of this. And so when people say, the Bible never claimed that Jesus was God, that's not the intent of it, it's nonsense. Because one of the, one of the key things you have to look at to prove that is look at Jesus' self-understanding. Who did Jesus think he was? We see time and time again, if somebody's going to worship somebody else, Peter and Paul, after they healed a bunch of guys in Acts, right, people tried to worship them, they're like, no, don't worship us, we're just men. We see people trying to worship angels, and angels say, do not worship me, I'm just an angel. What is Jesus doing here? He accepts it. He doesn't say stop. He accepts it. Why? Because Jesus is well aware of who he is. So we talk about Jesus being God and worthy of worship, we have to look at Jesus' self-awareness. And he definitely knew that he was God. Let's define, though, what we mean by worship. And remember our working definition. I'm going to put it up on the screen again for us. It, it means to express an attitude and gesture of one's complete dependence on and submission to an authority. Right? And I want to put that up there because we're in church and we're churchy people. So we think worship is this. Or we think worship is singing, right? My good friend Ron said it like three times this morning. Let's continue to worship. Yes, we are worshiping. Sorry, Ron, I did it too when I was a worship leader. We all do it, right? It's just it's shortcut for that, right? But worship is not only that. Worship is not only singing. Worship is not only just sitting here in church, right? Worship is this attitude. Worship is a lifestyle. And do our lives actually express what this definition says? A dependence on and submission to Jesus in every aspect of our lives. That's what it means to live a worshipful life. Do our lives reflect that dependence and submission to Jesus in our everyday lives? Yes, we sing as an act of worship. We come to church on the Lord's Day as an act of worship, but we also are called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as an act of worship with our lives. We also love each other as much as we love ourselves as an act of worship. We also, this is where it gets messy, right? We obey God personally as an act of worship. What he calls us to in his word, we actually do because we submit. This, this is not just an ordinary book, right? This is written by the Holy Spirit through ordinary men, and it is authoritative. So that means when it tells us to do things, we have to submit to its authority. And when we submit to its authority, we're submitting to God's authority, and we are doing that as an act of worship. So obedience is worship. It is vain for us to come in here and worship God in song if we do not obey him with our lives. You've got to remember that. And I'm not saying don't worship God in song, of course. But time and time again, God tells Israel, keep it, save it. I don't want your worship. I don't want, you're, you're, you're an idolater. You're worshiping other gods. You're not obeying me at all. So keep your feasts and your festivals and your sacrifices. Keep it. Save it. I don't want it. I want your hearts. That's what I want. 
So let's remember that. And we come into worship on Sunday mornings, right? Somebody said, if you're not going to worship him six days a week, you're not going to worship him on the seventh day of the week, right? On the Sabbath. So worship is, is a full-time occupation, right? And I would think that many times a day, we are captured in that moment that the disciples were right when they saw the risen Christ, right? Many times a day, we're vacillating between do I obey God here, or do I, just, do I just not, or do I hesitate, right? That, that, that moment where some of the disciples immediately fell on their faces, and then the other ones were trying to figure out what was going on, right? Picture what that looks like in our lives. When we're called to obey God, and we know it because we feel the Holy Spirit on us right at that moment, do we hesitate, or do we obey? We should not hesitate to worship Jesus. And I do want to touch for a moment because we have the word doubt in our passage, even though it doesn't necessarily mean the, the, the doubt in and of that we should think, normally would think it, right? Doubting is a part of coming to faith. Working through all of those doubts is a big part of both coming to faith and maturing as a believer. It's fine to doubt, right? Highlands should be a safe place to doubt, it should be the place that we come to ask those questions. We talk to our under-shepherds. We talk to our elders. We talk to me. We have those conversations, right? Instead of just harboring these doubts, we work these Why? Why am I so open with that? Because it's true. Like, push on it all you want. It's true. Explore those doubts. Push into those doubts. That's what church is about, explaining these things, which we'll get to in a minute, right? What we see, right, on the other side, then, is, is not so much honest doubt, but prideful resistance. There's a huge difference between honest doubt and prideful resistance. There's no prideful resistance to Jesus here in the disciples. There's people who are worshiping him, and there are people that are trying to get it through their Galilean brains exactly what's going on right now. There's no, there's no prideful resistance. What we see often in our culture today is not honest doubt. We see prideful resistance to Jesus, to God himself. Atheists and agnostics claim that they don't have enough evidence to believe in God. But yet when you push on that claim and you say, okay, well, if there was any way that I could give you all of the evidence that you would possibly need to believe in God, would you still believe? And if they're an honest atheist, they'll say no. Why? Because they don't want to believe. Prideful resistance, not honest doubt. There's a big, big difference between those two things. We won't be judged for our doubt. Press into the truth. It's solid. Those who pridefully resist the truth of the gospel will be judged. As for Jesus, he is worthy of our worship, and we should not hesitate to worship him because he is God, but also because he's king. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus tells them something. It's not really that unusual because he's actually said this before. If we, if we jump back to uh, maybe 1127, we can see that uh, Jesus tells them. That's 1227. That's why that doesn't make any sense. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Right? First part is where we're going here. All things, Jesus says, has been handed over to me by my Father. But now he's 
alive, right? This was the, the pre-risen Jesus, the, the alive Jesus before the, before the cross. Now he's resurrected. Now this authority takes on a new dimension. And Jesus tells them that this authority has been given to him. By whom? Well, the only one who could give that authority, God the Father. And what authority does he have? And it's, it's complicated for me to try and explain it here to get the full, uh, full understanding of what this means, what exactly is under his authority. And the Greek is very complex here. The word all means all. <laughs> it means everything. It means there is, I've told that joke before, and some of you are already giggling, and some of you just forgot it, right? It means what it means. It means everything. Jesus has all complete, total, comprehensive authority that has been given to him. There is nothing in this world at all that Jesus does not have authority over. A couple guys that I can't remember who said it, but you know, if there's if there's one square inch of this whole universe that that is not Jesus's, then he's not God and he's not king. But instead, every square inch of the universe is the property of Jesus. Right? Sproul would always say that there's not if there's one maverick molecule in the universe, Jesus isn't God. There are no maverick molecules. There are no maverick anything. Jesus has all authority. Everything in heaven, on earth, Jesus is king over. He has authority over every person, every angel, every evil spirit, every government, every president, every military force, every single person who has ever lived is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Scripture directly calls him King of kings and Lord of lords in several places. And we can jump to the end of the story in Revelation 19 where King Warrior Jesus comes back on his war horse with his sword. In 1916 says, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not 80s-haired gentle Jesus with the lamb around his neck. This is Warrior Jesus with his sword on his war horse, and he says, I am king of kings and lord of lords. Then he comes in judgment. Notice that Matthew also writes in past tense here. He says, has been given to me. He has it. He has it already. Jesus Christ is right now king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus Christ right now is sitting on his throne and ruling and reigning every single molecule in his kingdom. That's the God that we serve. And I think, well, I know that we have lost sight of this in the evangelical church at large. Sometimes it seems like much of the evangelical church acts like there's this great dualistic struggle between good and evil And we're not sure who's going to win. We're not sure if Jesus can actually pull it off. So we just better wring our hands and worry about how bad it is out there. And maybe hope Jesus will come back soon. Church, we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. As a matter of fact, Jesus has won. This is past tense. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. His resurrection is the basis for that. And his father, our father, God the Father has granted this authority to him 
everything under heaven and earth. There is no authority that is higher than Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so I'll say it this way. We should not worry about who is in charge. We should not worry about who is in charge. No matter what we see on the news sites, no matter what appears to be happening, and I know what some of you are thinking, okay, Pastor Mike, but uh, there's some pretty nasty stuff happening out there. It doesn't actually look like he's in charge. I get that. I understand that. Yes, we all have that tendency. It does look like that from time to time, but this is the scriptural truth. He is in charge. We should not worry about who is in charge. Right now, God has allowed evil in his kingdom for his purposes. And it's up to him. And when we think about, well, maybe he's not in charge, I'll tell you a couple things. I'll tell you that evil and sin are not running amok. Jesus is on his throne. He's allowed evil and sin to be in this world for his purposes and his glory. He actively restrains evil. Think about that. When you get worried about what's going on in the world, think about if there was no God and there was no restraint on evil. You think this world is going to hell in a handbasket, it would probably blow up inside an hour if Jesus was not actively restraining evil every single day, every single moment, ruling and reigning his kingdom. Now, why he restrains some evil and not other evil, that's in a secret council. But we do know that he is good and he is on his throne and he is with us when we go through it ourselves. I'd also tell you to look at the big story of the Bible. Jesus has done this work completely. It is finished. He lived the perfect life, died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sin, was gloriously resurrected and ascended back to the Father, leaving us the Holy Spirit. And while we're in this promised return, or waiting for his promised return, we have work to do. And we're going to get into that next. But for right now, the church is in this, we're all in this period of grace. He has given us the way for us to be reconciled to him. And before he comes back again, right, we have this period of grace where he is calling people to himself and he is saving souls. That's the work of the church. The way that uh, one theologian expressed it is that, yes, he is still king of kings and lord of lords. It is his kingdom over everything. But there's some rebel subjects in his kingdom. There's a lot of rebel subjects in his kingdom. There's a lot of people that, again, not so much doubt Jesus Christ, but pridefully resist Jesus as king. It's a rebel subject in his kingdom, and what is he doing? He could just turn them into a smoldering pile of dust. That would be a bad thing, because many of us, myself included, were a rebel subject at one time. At one time. He's allowing the, the church to do the work through the Spirit so that those rebel subjects like me, formally, right, could come to an understanding of what is going on here and could come to saving knowledge of Christ. Right? And so when we see evil at work in the world, don't think God isn't on his throne, but think rebel subjects and think he is gracious and merciful and he's withholding judgment so that they could come to an understanding of how they can be forgiven and restored. The true church, however, still submits to Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. The world around us does not. That's the difference, church. We submit to and serve the true king. We shouldn't worry if he's in charge or not. He is. But there's another aspect of authority, right? We touched on it before. 
For us, church, our submission to Jesus' authority, our submission to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords has a real practical, personal implication. And that's how we live our lives every single day. In the area of holiness and sanctification, we ask these questions, who's really in charge of your life? Who's really king of your life? Is it Jesus or is it yourself? Is it Jesus or your emotions? Is it Jesus or your stomach? Is it Jesus or your bank account or your sexual desire? Is it Jesus or your career? Is it Jesus or your kid? I mean, I could go on and on and on, right? That's how we, that's how we tell if we are submitting to King Jesus in our lives by the things we do every single day. And now, we all know we vacillate in between those two extremes, right? We have one minute where we've picked ourselves as king of, the, of our own little universe and we sin, right? And then we have another minute where we're sitting in church like this and saying, yeah, Jesus is king over our lives, right? The idea for a Christian is to, as much as possible, be under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that should be an ever-increasing measure, right? That's what it means to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm not the boss. He is. And so what I do with my life is not my ultimate decision. I do what he tells me to do with my ultimate decision. So no, I'm not going to do that sin because he's king of kings and lord of lords. No, I'm not going to respond that way angrily to my spouse. No, I'm not going to give in to depression, despair, worry, anxiety. No, I'm not going to look at porn. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to get drunk. Not, why? Because he's king of kings and lord of lords of my life. That's why. It comes really, really practically to us. We serve King Jesus in the hundreds of little authority decisions we make every single day. Others do not serve him, but make no mistake, they will one day, right? This is not like Jesus is going to be like, oh, well, well, some people never came to the understanding that I was king and God after all. Maybe they will someday. No, they're, they're not going to escape the truth that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul tells us this famously in Philippians 2, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, sounds like all the Bible tells the same story, right? Saying the same thing again. Jesus has a name that's above every other name. So at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's not whether or not some people are going to believe or not. Everybody at some point will kneel before King Jesus and call him King of kings and Lord of lords. It just might be too late. Because they might have pridefully resisted Jesus Christ their entire lives. And when they finally do that at Judgment Day, it will be too late for them. That's why the work of the church is happening now. That's why Hebrews tells us now, today is the day of salvation. That's why we understand these things at work right now. But for us, church, we should not worry about who's in charge. Jesus tells us this. He is over everything for all of eternity. So instead of throwing up our hands and saying, oh well, evil's winning again, let's remember, why not let that drive us to do the work that God has called us to do? Why not remember, no, 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 my king is on the throne, he really is, and we've got work to do. Let us strive and build and create for the glory of the eternal kingdom of Jesus because our king is on his throne because Jesus is going to tie directly his authority into our mission 
And he gives it to the disciples right here. Look at verse 19 of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Based on the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and therefore the, the resulting authority over all things that has been placed on him by the Father, he says, therefore, because of that, go. And sometimes we read that and we hear go as the main command in this passage. Go is actually the not, the, not the main command in this passage. We think go, and then we better go. We run out the building and find someone to tell about Jesus, right? We sign up to be a missionary in Africa or something like that because it told me to go. I'm not saying you should not do either of those things, but go is not the main command. Go is actually a participle in this sentence. The main command here is actually make disciples, Make disciples in two things. Who do we make disciples of and how do we make disciples? And first, who? Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. But don't think of like our current national borders. Like if you draw a map of the world and, you know, I got to get that nation and that nation and that nation, right? And that's difficult because nations change all the time. Borders change all the time. Think instead more ethnicities, ethnic backgrounds and this this in the Greek, pantata ethne, which essentially means all of the ethnicities, all of the backgrounds. There are many ethnicities within any particular nation. There are hundreds and hundreds in New York City alone or in any other urban area. Right? Some are called to go to places far away as missionaries. And yes and amen. And I hope that God raises up missionaries from Highlands Bible Church to go and have a special burden for a special people group or ethnicity somewhere on the other side of the world. We need people to do that, right? But we also need to realize that the mission field is all around us. And so who are we called to make disciples of? And Jesus says, everyone, from all nations, without bias, without distinction. And how are we to do that? Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Note that we are baptizing people in a specific way. We're baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest affirmations we have of the truth of the Trinity. You're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you're certainly going to find the Trinity in the Bible in places like this. All three are three in one triune God. Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And Jesus says, when you make disciples, baptize them in the name of that triune God. We're also to teach them everything that Jesus told the disciples. Now, let me think. Where do we usually baptize people and regularly teach them God's word? Yeah, I think it's the church. This, this, we sometimes read this and it's like, this is my mission, I gotta go, and we run out the door. It's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. He's, he's giving this to us. He's giving this to the church. This is the central mission of the church. And so here's the point. The church is where disciples are made and matured. The church is where disciples are made and matured. I get a little prickly with parachurch ministries, the, the, the ministries that go alongside the church. And I understand that some of them serve very, very valuable things, but some of them are just out of their lane. 
Some of them are doing the work of the church. Let the church do that. And I acknowledge that it's because the church has fallen down in some of those areas. And so Highlands, let's not fall down. Let, let's, let, we don't want to do that. We want to do, we want to focus on what God has called us to, making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about how we do that. And he, he gives us two specific ways. First, baptism. And baptism is the ceremonial and substantive entry into the church and into the faith. Faithful Christians disagree on the mode of baptism, right? If you're from a Reformed Protestant background, right, you might be a covenant infant baptism, right? And we disagree on the mode of baptism, but uh, some Reformed uh, churches would believe that infant baptism is the sign and the seal of the covenant. We recognize that. I, I get how you got there, but our conviction is not that here at Highlands Bible Church. Our, our, our conviction is different here because we see it in Scripture. We at Highlands believe that baptism is for believers. When someone consciously repents of their faith and believes in Jesus Christ, they are baptized. We do a baptism service here about once a year. In the new building, maybe we'll have a baptistry. So we don't have to wait until summer every year to do that, right? But at their baptism, people give public testimony of how they have come to know Jesus Christ. They believe that they're sinners in need of a Savior, and they publicly stand before the church, right? That's why this is in the context of the church. That's why I say no to those baptisms when we were in Israel. People were asking, can you baptize me in the Jordan? And I say, is your whole church here? And they say no. And I say, well, I'm not going to do it then, right? Because we, we baptize in front of you guys, right? You're our accountability partners, right? You're our brothers and sisters. It's people standing up before the members of church and saying, I'm a believer now. I'm a Christian. Hear me say it with my own words, and I need you, the church, to help me stay a Christian and to help me grow. And so we baptize in the presence of the church itself. But people give testimony and then I baptize them, or another elder baptizes them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Going under the water symbolizes being dead to sin, like Jesus was in the grave for three days, dead. Coming up out of the water symbolizes the, the cleansing we have for forgiveness. And then, of course, being raised up out of the dead symbolizes us like Jesus was resurrected, so we are resurrected to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of what the gospel does. It's an external picture of what happens inside us when we believe. And so a good question to ask is, have you been baptized? And Jesus commands us to. Jesus commands the church to baptize. And while we can disagree on the mode or the age of someone being baptized, the non-negotiable here is the baptism itself. Baptism is the entrance to the faith. Baptism is the making of disciples. But then you continue on in the faith. You need to grow. You need to be taught. You need to mature. And notice this isn't what Pastor Mike says, right? He, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I don't have any original thoughts. This is, this is what I've got. I've got God's Word. I hope to unpack that, and I hope to apply it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my job. I love my job. But it's not what I think. It's what Jesus has commanded us. We continue on in the faith, and it's not just an intellectual. Notice what Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. It's not just, oh, okay, thanks, Pastor Mike, got that intellectual checkbox. It is observing it. 
It is actually teaching them to follow it. It is actually, again, back to obedience. Are we actually obeying all the things that Jesus has taught us, right? Actual obedience to all that Jesus has taught us. Go back through all of Matthew. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You see Jesus' other teachings, and not just the red letters of the Bible, all of the Bible. Jesus cites the Old Testament. How many times did we come across that in, in Matthew? So many times. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. In another account, Jesus clearly says to his disciples that all of Scripture is about him. There was this account that uh, Matthew doesn't record for us, but Luke does, where Jesus meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he tells them this clearly in, in 24, 25 through 27. Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish ones. That's so nice. Resurrected Jesus. Dopes. Listen. And you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's talking about all that the prophets have spoken. It's pretty much all that, right? He says, where am I now? I lost my place. I flipped my page for that dramatic effect of flipping the Old Testament, right? You're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And watch this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of the Bible is about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And so when we do not give in to the temptation here, when it says, oh, we just have to observe everything that Jesus said, Right? I've had actual conversations with people that say, no, we just got to worry about the red letter stuff. It's, that's, what, that's what's in my Bible, what Jesus says. Everything else is kind of, you know, if we get to it, we get to it. It'd be good. But no, everything, the whole Bible in context. And I know some of you are thinking, even Leviticus? Well, sort of. We've got, we've got to do some work at unpacking that. We are not ethnic geographic Israel, right? So there are some things that Jesus has fulfilled Anything that is equitable as far as anything that is appropriate in our world, right? In our context, we obey. God's law is an expression of his character. But the point is, it's everything. It's not just what Jesus has said, just the words. And we see Jesus here setting up the church. Because the church is where we baptize. The church is where we teach. And again, this is our actual mission statement of Highlands Bible Church. We glorify God, right, let's say it all together. We glorify God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. It's on our sign. It's in our bulletins. We talk about it all the time. Everything we do here has to line up under that. So when we talk about a new ministry, we talk about a new effort or a new this or a new that, the question is from the elders, how does this help us make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ? It needs to line up with that. Because this is the mission. This is what God has given us. This is what God has given every church. But I'm afraid a lot of churches are off mission. A lot of churches have lost their way. And they substitute whatever, the social gospel or politics or whatever they want to say in here. Jesus has given us the mission clearly. But look at this very last part of the last verse of Matthew. <laughs> we did it. Last verse of Matthew. What does that last part say? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Right? Isn't that incredible when you think about that? That Jesus says, yeah, here's your mission. But guess what? I'm going with you. I'm still with you. And I know that there's a huge temptation in a sermon like this to think like, okay, great, another sermon on how I'm supposed to go off and go and do and tell and conquer the world for Jesus. And you're just thinking, I, 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 my life is a dumpster fire right now. I can't, I can't conquer the world for Jesus. I can't even conquer Tuesday for myself. And, and I get that. I understand that. But how much does that change with the last part of this verse? Jesus is with you. So there's, there's no level that we have to attain to to be useful in the kingdom of God. Can we think about that? There's nothing that we have to necessarily bring to the equation. Jesus brings it to the equation. Jesus is with us. The presence of Jesus is that power for the mission. And so I'll say the big idea this way. The presence of Jesus empowers the mission of Jesus. The presence of Jesus empowers the mission of Jesus. What is the mission of Jesus? Well, he just gave it to us. Make and mature disciples of himself. We do that by sharing the gospel with words. We actually have to use words to share the gospel. But these words are useless unless our life doesn't look like our words. Right? So we have to live a legit, authentic life as a Christian and combine that with testimony, and then that is the power of the proclaimed gospel. We live it out. We make disciples. We are baptized into the faith, and then we teach God's word to grow into a mature disciple. That's what we're doing right here, right now. The mission of Jesus first starts with recognizing who Jesus is. He's God. It starts with worshiping him, not just on a Sunday morning singing songs, but with all of our lives, and we should not hesitate to worship him. We worship him with our whole lives, and most pointedly, we worship him with our everyday choices, our obedience. Obedience stems from what? His authority. Because Jesus is truly King of kings and Lord of lords right now. He is sitting on his throne right now. Think about that. The king that is on his throne right now, ruling and reigning over every molecule in his kingdom, is with you right now as you seek to live out the mission that he has called us to. For most of us, the immediate context of, of this is where God has placed us, right? As he has all authority, he has custom-designed every single one of our lives with our families, with our backgrounds, with our careers, with our neighborhoods, with whatever else, all. That's your mission field. That's your mission field. How are you doing with your mission field? Parents, how are we doing evangelizing our kids? How are we doing with our neighbors? How are we doing with the people we work with? How are we doing with the moms at the bus stop and the moms group that we talk to and the dads group that we hang out with? That's the mission field. Right? Some of us, hopefully, will be called to go out to other mission fields as well. But don't neglect this mission field where God, the sovereign king of all kings, has placed you for a very specific purpose. To influence those people around you for the glory of God and to make and mature disciples and remembering the whole time that the presence of Jesus empowers that mission of Jesus. And this is also, of course, centered on us, the local church. We are the local kingdom outpost for King Jesus, right? Sometimes we just think, yeah, we're a church. We get together, we sing songs, and we eat bagels, right? No, this is a kingdom 
outpost. This is an outpost of God's kingdom right here on earth. There should be a flag. I wish we had a flag for God's kingdom. Right? This, this is it. This is, this is our, our kingdom outpost. We are then, our marching orders are the Great Commission. This is where the Great Commission happens. The church is where disciples are made and matured. And we just hit 100 members here at Highlands Bible Church. And we have 10 more in process, should they survive. Right? We have 10 more in process. <laughs> we have a mess of people to baptize this summer. Our goal is to faithfully proclaim the truth of God's word every Sunday morning in our Bible studies, in our care groups, in our prayer meetings, in one-on-one shepherding relationships and discipleships. Highlands, everything we do has to line up with this calling. That's the calling for us individually, but it's also the calling for us as a church. Everything has to line up with this. The mission has always been the same. Glenn read from Genesis for a reason. Because before God even formed the nation of Israel, he said, Abram, I'm going to bless you and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. How is that going to happen? Through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Coming through Israel to then bless all of the nations with the message of reconciliation. The gospel has always been global. It continues to be. And the best part, again, is that he is with us. The presence of Jesus empowers the mission of Jesus. How? Well, that comes back to actually the Trinity again. He's not with us personally. We don't have little Jesus in our pockets, right? But we have him in the presence and person of what the Holy, or who the Holy Spirit is. And before Jesus went away, he had a conversation with the disciples because he told them they were going away. And they're like, this is a terrible idea. We don't want you to get killed. We don't want you to go away. We need you here. And Jesus actually tells them, he says, no, it's actually better that I go away. I need to go away in order for the Holy Spirit to come. And he promises them this. He says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father, see the Trinity again right there? Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit from the Father. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus' presence with us brings peace. So we don't have to worry about who's in charge. We don't have to worry about, is Jesus really on his throne? We don't have to worry about conjuring all this up in and of ourselves because Jesus is with us in the Holy Spirit and that brings peace. The presence of Jesus empowers the mission of Jesus. All of Matthew points to this moment. All of Matthew points to Jesus saying, guess what? I'm with you. And remember how Matthew started. Two years ago in Advent, remember how Matthew started. Who is he? He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's still with us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you for this clarity of the mission that you have called us to and the assurance of your authority, the assurance of your presence. God, would you help us in each one of our lives to submit to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Lord, as we seek to obey you with all of our lives. 
Father, for those who are struggling right now in, in seasons that just thinking about doing work for the kingdom or sharing the gospel is a crippling, paralyzing thought, let your presence empower them. Lord, that what you're bringing them through might be the truth or the suffering that you can, they, you can then use to communicate to someone else who might go through the same thing, who might say, Jesus was with me as well, and he will be with you. Father, for us as the church, would you please keep us faithful? Father, for the elders, keep us faithful. Father, would we focus all of our efforts on what you have called us to bring glory to you through the making and maturing of disciples of Jesus Christ. And we go with the presence of Jesus empowering that mission. And we pray it in his name. Amen.